You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got a special guest, Jack Brower, on the program. Uh, Welcome, Jack. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Jack, uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your background and uh, how you came to the environmental movement? Well, I am a professor here at the University of California, Irvine, and the director of the National Fuel Cell Research Center. Um, I came to be concerned about the environment as a kid because I loved camping and hiking and backpacking and these sorts of things. I also grew up on a farm in San Diego um, and uh, had concern for agricultural things and a a love for the environment um, as a result. Um, I studied energy conservation and energy conversion technologies uh, for my PhD and have been doing energy conversion technologies ever since. Primarily now focused on electrochemical energy conversion, which is primarily through electrolysis, hydrogen, fuel cells, and batteries. That's, uh, that's great stuff. Um, so um, tell us a little bit more about the National Fuel Cell uh, research that uh, you're doing and doing down at UCI? So we have uh, several faculty who have expertise in a broad set of areas. Um, my particular expertise uh, that are associated with the National Fuel Cell Research Center, my particular expertise is in high temperature or solid oxide electrolyzers, fuel cells, and um, related technologies. So these are um, ceramic fuel cells and ceramic electrolyzers. And we are um, advancing these because they can achieve very high efficiency for producing hydrogen on the one hand and converting hydrogen back to electricity on the other hand, so that the round trip efficiency of a, a hydrogen economy can be supported by these types of electrolyzers and fuel cells. Um, We have expertise in the lower temperature proton exchange membrane types of fuel cells, uh, especially represented by Professor Irina Zenyuk. Um, We have um, people who are doing uh, amazing work in brand new electrocatalysts that can be used in fuel cells and electrolyzers like uh, Plamen Atanasov and uh, Voya Stemenkovich. So we have other professors that are doing these other things that are also related to electrochemistry hydrogen and enabling this zero emissions future. So uh, tell us about some of the things that are uh, kind of in the marketplace right now in, in cars such as the, uh, the Toyota Mirai that I drive, which is a hydrogen fuel cell car versus the types of uh, uh, hydrogen technology that you're working on. Well, the type of technology that's in a Toyota Mirai today is a proton exchange membrane fuel cell. It requires pure hydrogen for its operation and also as a result requires investment in hydrogen infrastructure for fueling it, which was started from scratch here in the early 2010 uh, timeframe. The uh, technology that I work on is not necessarily for automobiles. Mm -hmm. It is a higher temperature, takes a long time to start and to um, get warm, um, but then can operate dynamically on the grid to complement sun and wind power. So think of it this way as a stationary system 
that can be operating um, in electrolysis mode to make hydrogen whenever there's a lot of sun and wind power available. And that can operate in the other direction from the stored hydrogen to make electricity when there's no sun or wind power. Um, and then if you couple it to the natural gas grid as we decarbonize it, <laughs> then what you can do is you can actually move that hydrogen around in society, use it for all kinds of other reasons, including the Toyota Mirai, <laughs> mm -hmm. and use it for massive energy storage and use in other end um, uses. Now, are you familiar with the work that's uh, being done in Lancaster uh, by Mayor Rex Paris and uh, you're shaking your head yes. Uh, yes. Maybe you could tell us uh, what your familiarity is. We had uh, Mayor Rex on the show a little while ago, and he told us a lot about the uh, the hydrogen, uh, how he's linking up the solar and hydrogen power um, in Lancaster. So maybe you could yes. give us your perspective there. So first of all, the mayor of Lancaster was quite visionary to establish his city as one of the first hydrogen cities in the whole United States. <laughs> and he's doing so because he realizes, as we have realized uh, for many years now, that when you, if you want to engender a high renewable content in your energy uh, system, both for transportation and for um, electricity, uh, then what you must do is you must have certain features features like um, massive energy storage, because there always are a couple of weeks where you don't have a lot of sun and wind power. And that is engendered by the features of hydrogen, which separate the power and energy features of the storage system. In other words, you need a fuel cell and electrolyzer for the power amount, but you size the tank for the energy amount. Hmm. Okay. You can't, you can't do that with batteries. Batteries have a certain kilowatt and a certain kilowatt hours, certain amount of power, certain amount of energy. If you need more power, buy more batteries. If you need more energy, buy more batteries. And you end up with a pile of batteries, way too much power capability that you don't need, <laughs> but you need that many for the energy. Um, so this is, so realizing this kind of a feature um, pointed him in the direction of investing in hydrogen. And one of the particular investments is together with Heliogen, which is a high temperature solar thermal means of facilitating hydrogen production. Okay, so this is really interesting and it's directly related to my research on high temperature electrolysis, which can take a thermal input and electrical input to make hydrogen at very high efficiencies. So this is one of the things that he's investing in there, in addition to the solar and the wind and everything that's also there. So how do you see that uh, being able to roll out across the state of California, across the United States, and ultimately across the world? So the um, techno-economic analyses that we have done for hydrogen production from sun and wind power um, show that today the capital cost of the electrolyzer and the fuel cell very significantly contribute to the cost of renewable hydrogen. Um, but that in the end, when those come down a learning rate curve, when they become more commonplace, and when, and when the market size of fuel cells and electrolyzers gets to be a reasonable size, 
Then the most important cost is actually the renewable energy itself. So what do I mean by this? So, so today, it's pretty expensive to make renewable hydrogen from solar power, wind power, through electrolysis. And it's partly because of the capital cost of the electrolysis, but also partly because still solar power and wind power are a little too expensive. But we already know those are coming down and down and down all the time. We need to install more and more of those. And in California, we're starting to already curtail some of that because we make too much at certain times and we can't even use it. We have to force people to buy it in um, Arizona and Nevada at negative prices. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. However, eventually we will have so much of this that it's going to make a lot of sense to put it into electrolyzers. It's going to make a lot of sense to put the cheaper electricity that's available on the shoulders of this excess into electrolyzers. And then the electrolyzers costs are going to come down. And as a matter of fact, the U.S. Department of Energy is going to invest so much in the hydrogen economy. They expect the cost per kilogram of hydrogen made in this sort of way to be a dollar per kilogram, which is almost an order of magnitude less than what it costs today. And, and let me let me make let me make a, a point how about that. How does that compare uh, uh, with the cost of energy from petroleum or natural ga- natural gas? If it was a dollar per kilogram, yes. If it's a dollar per kilogram, then it's comparable to the cost of natural gas today, and much cheaper than the cost of petroleum today. Okay, okay. petroleum distillate fuels that we use in transportation. However. Hydrogen is more difficult to move around in society. So we're going to pay more after we make it to put it in the pipelines, to deliver it to the fueling stations, and then to have the fueling stations dispense it to vehicles. However, our, our, our suggested prices at the pump are order of magnitude $3 then. $2 for moving it around and paying for all the infrastructure and $1 for making it. And at $3 per kilogram, it's roughly half the price per mile as gasoline today. That's because you can, go, you can go twice as many miles per energy content. Okay, so I think in the end, <laughs> this renewable hydrogen is going to be cheaper than petroleum and about the cost of natural gas. Well, I think that we've got to invest in, in the hydrogen technology the same as we invested in uh fossil fuels and, and mm-hmm. oil and, and the like. Uh, we have tons of pipelines uh, used, you know, used to transport oil and natural gas. We should invest in pipelines for hydrogen in the same way. Absolutely. Uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. My uh, guest today is Jack Brower. We'll be back uh, in just one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Madden, your host, and I've got Jack Brower, professor at UCI. Um, and we're talking about hydrogen and how it can help us get to a green economy. And, and before, the, uh, before the break, uh, Professor, I was talking to you about Lancaster and, and what they're doing there to get to a zero emissions economy. And uh, I know you had talked to us about one of the uh, ways they're doing it with the Heliogen project. Uh, maybe you could 
talk to us about some of the other things they're doing and how we can use those technologies across the state of California and, and across the country. Yeah, Lancaster has also invested in, I think, two other ways of using hydrogen as a means to store uh, renewable energy or to convert a waste stream into this valuable hydrogen that displaces diesel and gasoline in automobiles. So one of the things that they have invested in um, and are supporting in Lancaster is a power to gas to power system. And this idea is to take renewable electricity through an electrolyzer and to produce hydrogen when we have plenty of that renewable energy available and to store that hydrogen. And then to, at a later time, put that hydrogen through a fuel cell to make electricity. In this way, hydrogen's acting like an energy storage medium, just like a battery. It has electricity going in and electricity coming out. But the benefit of storing it as hydrogen is associated with a number of features that hydrogen provides that batteries can't, like the fact that it doesn't have self-discharge. Any type of battery which has the chemicals in close contact with the electrodes cannot stop but have a bit of discharge of the chemical energy over time, even without getting net flow from the electrodes. Okay, so you have intimate contacting of the electrodes with the chemicals, and as a result, over time, the batteries die. Okay. Okay. What we have with the fuel cell and electrolyzer is you make the hydrogen in the electrolyzer, but you store it in a tank. The tank's over there. <laughs> it's not touching the electrodes. And so you can, for a very long time, store that hydrogen and return it back to electricity. You know this from your own experience with things like batteries in your cell phones, right? So if you have your cell phone um, charged, fully charged, and you turn it off, when you turn it back on a week later, it's only at 90% charge. What happened? Self-discharge. How about your car? <laughs> you don't drive it for six months and it doesn't start. Why? Not because there's anything wrong with the battery. It's a natural phenomenon of self-discharge. Mm -hmm. So if you need to store energy from the summer and to deliver it in the winter, you can't do it with batteries. You got to do it with something like hydrogen. This is what the power to gas to power can do. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a pretty amazing technology. In terms of other efficiencies that hydrogen has vis-a-vis -vis solar, uh, maybe you could talk about the lithium ion batteries and the, and the uh, cost of kind of creating those to the environment as well mining and such? Yes. Um, first of all, uh, batteries are very important to our zero emission future, and lithium-ion batteries are really amazing. Um, they are being used in all of our consumer electronics, um, and they have very high power densities, very high energy densities, um, and they're important to our zero emissions transportation future and even to our electric grid. But we have to realize the limitations that they also have. Um, like I said earlier, they're not good for long duration storage. And 
We cannot use them for the massive amount of storage we need at the grid scale. Why can we not use them? Uh, first, because they can't, they have self-discharge. Second, because you can't separate the power and energy so that you have to buy too many of them for how much energy you need to store. But third, the magnitude of energy storage that the grid needs when it has very high renewable content could never be stored in lithium ion batteries. Simply because we don't have enough lithium and cobalt, the main constituents in lithium ion battery, anywhere around the world to make even one battery that could do that. So how okay. could we do it with uh, hydrogen to, uh, to store the energy coming from the solar and, and wind farms and uh, keep it for evening or when the wind isn't blowing or the sun mm -hmm. isn't shining? How do we do that? So um, the good news is that we make the hydrogen from water. <laughs> and water is very abundant compared to lithium and cobalt in particular. Okay, and so when we make it from water, we take it through renewable energy going into the electrolyzer plus water going into the electrolyzer and we make renewable hydrogen. That hydrogen can be stored in pipelines like the pipelines that we use for natural gas today and in the underground storage facilities that we use also for natural gas today. And those facilities are, have a massive amount of energy storage capability. And this sort of technology is being proven. In Texas today, we have two massive geological structures, underground geologic structures that are storing safely and with zero leakage, at least according to Eric um, Lakeed, <laughs> zero leakage in underground geologic formations. Um, these happen to be salt caverns, which are a little bit different than what we have in California, but it's the same sort of thing. Underground geologic formations where we can store hydrogen in massive quantities and for a long period of time. Um, now, and we why, make are they, why are they doing it in Texas? What's, uh, what's going on in Texas? Well, Texas has a very high hydrogen demand because of their refinery complexes. And the geology they have there is for salt caverns. These are caverns that were made from mining of salt. Um, and there are over 3,000 of them in Texas. And those have proven capabilities for storing hydrogen. The ones that we have here in California are depleted oil and gas fields. They are not yet proven to store hydrogen. So we have some research and development to do to enable that here in California. However, they're building a brand new one in Utah right now okay, that is serving LADWP, okay? So California power is going to come through hydrogen stored in a salt cavern in Utah to LA consumers. <laughs> That's pretty fascinating. So yeah. how much, uh, how many of those would we need to have to kind of meet the storage needs for, for mm -hmm. California? Very nice question. Um, because we already, if we are able, to convert the depleted oil and gas fields that we currently use to store uh, natural gas today in California. If we're able to convert those to renewable hydrogen, they would be sufficient. So we would not have to even build any new storage facilities. Now, again, this is 
if we are able to convert them to renewable hydrogen from the current natural gas storage that they accomplished for us. What are we what are we doing currently to to test those uh, um, storage facilities in California so we can determine whether they are safe and effective? So there are some small efforts that are underway to test various aspects of storing hydrogen in these facilities. Um, and in Europe and um, in um, other places around the world, um, they have actually tested with real hydrogen injection into some similar facilities. But this is just emerging now as an option for our highly renewable future. But it's super valuable to the ability to introduce solar and wind power at very high uh, quantities. Uh, this, this storage in uh, existing underground facilities is super valuable to um, a zero emissions future. Where, where are we at in California in terms of uh, renewables? How much of our electricity are we getting from sun and, and wind? Yeah, we're getting about uh, 35 to 40% of our um, electricity today from renewables, which is a pretty remarkable number, but it's the easiest part uh, uh, because we're able to complement that now with a whole bunch of natural gas combustion that goes on and off every day. Okay, it goes on and off every day. And interestingly, it's the main electricity that's powering battery electric vehicles. Natural okay. gas power is natural gas power is the main electricity going into battery electric vehicles because most of them are charging at night when the sun's sun's down. Interestingly, there's more than forty percent renewable content in the fuel that's going into your Mirai. Okay. So the Mirai is more renewable than a Tesla. <laughs> so, uh, how is that? Tell tell us why is that. Because the most Teslas are charging at night using primarily natural gas power. Mm -hmm. Because the majority of our renewable energy is coming to us from sun. And that's and only a why, where is the where is the Mirai energy coming from, probably? Ah, the Mirai energy comes from mostly biogas, but some renewable electrolysis, as I've been describing. So there's biogas that gets converted into hydrogen that goes to the fueling station that you fuel at. Okay, well, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern and uh, our guest, Jack Brower, professor at UCI. And uh, we'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern and our guest today, Jack Brower professor at University of California, Irvine. Uh, professor, uh, we're at 35% uh, renewable content and electricity. Uh, how do we get to complete zero emissions electricity in California and around the country? Yes, thank you. The, um, we've done a remarkable job of adopting sun and wind power in the state of California, getting to that 35% number. And um, all around the world, other um, jurisdictions have done similar things. So, for example, in Germany, they are at even higher renewable content, but it is the first 50% or so of renewable energy that's the easiest because you can complement it with natural gas plants that are cycling up and down. 
But if we have to start removing more and more of that natural gas power, which we depend upon every evening, and which we depend upon, especially over particular seasons, then you start to need a large amount of energy storage and storage that can store for a long period of time. And this is where hydrogen is preferred over other storage options like battery energy storage. And this again is because it doesn't suffer from self-discharge. So hydrogen can be stored in a tank over here or in an underground facility over here and for a long time without losing any of the energy. But it also has separate power and energy scaling. Again, so that if we can size the electrolyzers and fuel cells for the power and we size the tank for the energy, and that makes it a lot cheaper for a massive amount of storage. And so that's why hydrogen will be adopted for high renewable content. High renewable content is gonna require long duration and massive and um, seasonal energy storage that hydrogen is best at. So uh, why do we have so much smaller amounts of renewable energy in transportation applications today? So transportation depends upon a very high energy density carrier that, um, that we move around. Um, so for example, the petroleum distillate fuels can store way more energy on a volumetric and mass basis than batteries. Order of magnitude, a hundred times more energy is available in a gasoline tank than in a battery of the same size. Order of magnitude, 10 times more energy than hydrogen is available in gasoline. Hmm. It's a beautiful energy carrier for transportation because of this very high volumetric and gravimetric energy density. Um, and so it's difficult to actually make batteries good enough to actually go a reasonable distance. Now, we are starting to have those kinds of batteries. It's also difficult to store hydrogen in that amount of energy density. And so you can see that for transportation applications, which depend upon a high energy density carrier, um, it's more difficult to compete with that than it is to have a, a power plant over here that doesn't matter how much it weighs, doesn't matter how much um, it, uh, how large it is. Okay, so it's just that the energy density requirements of transportation are so stringent. And this is especially the case for things like airplanes and long haul trucks, right, that have to carry a big payload. And so we imagine that those will most likely not be powered by batteries very much, but rather by hydrogen, which has this energy density benefit compared to batteries. So only if you have to go short distance. <laughs> and you don't mind charging for a long period of time, and you don't have to carry a heavy payload, then batteries might be more efficient, but they don't have those features of fast fueling, long range, and heavy payload. That's where hydrogen shines for transportation. Yeah, it seems as though hydrogen would certainly be the fuel of the future for trucks in particular mm -hmm. and, and planes, uh, because yes. I don't think there's a battery-powered plane that's going to take off anytime soon. Yeah, lightweight drones and very lightweight aircraft, maybe batteries are okay, but hydrogen for most everything else. Um, where are we at in terms of making that transition to hydrogen trucks and hydrogen planes? I, I saw recently there was a hydrogen helicopter that they're working on. 
Yeah, um, the majors, Boeing and Airbus, um, they're all investing in hydrogen and hydrogen derivatives as fuels for their future. But we also have a, a very large number of startup companies that are making um, hydrogen aircraft today. Um, we um, also know that the, um, the technology itself, which has been advanced very significantly, the fuel cells are much more power dense than they used to be. And the hydrogen storage facilities, we know how to make many of these because of the large investment, especially of the uh, vehicle OEMs, you know, Toyota and General Motors and Daimler and Honda and Hyundai, um, they've made huge investments and the technology's really advanced significantly. And so we're starting to see, um, you know, actual aircraft being built that are um, using hydrogen um, today. Well, I saw that uh, one of the uh, car companies had pulled out of the hydrogen uh, vehicle making, and I, I can't recall if it was Hyundai or Honda. What, why do you think uh, they did that? So um, Hyundai is very active still, and they're one of the leaders both in um, passenger vehicles and in heavy-duty trucks. Uh, like Toyota, they're investing in both of those. Um, and so we're, we're seeing uh, both Toyota and Hyundai very active, um, and so, so is Daimler and many, many others. Uh, General Motors is, is uh, doing this too now. Um, Honda stopped offering their clarity in the fuel cell model, I believe primarily because of the infrastructure challenges they are experiencing all around the world. Um, and we're experiencing them here. You probably experience them there yourself in your own um, uh, driving of the Mirai. The infrastructure is very nascent. It is just beginning to be installed and it's not widely available. And then the supply chain for providing the hydrogen is again, just brand new infrastructure. There was, a, there was no infrastructure to start with, which is one of the reasons why hydrogen hasn't had as big of an uptake amongst consumers as battery electric vehicles have, because everyone can charge their own battery electric vehicle in their garage. Well, just to say, I, I really haven't had too much of a problem in uh, getting fuel for the uh, Mirai, and I've this is the, actually the second one I've had, so I've been driving one for uh, three and a half years. Yes. Uh, and, and it has not been too challenging to get fuel, and I've driven from here to San Francisco before, and there's okay. it, you can do it. Yeah, um, but I I would say that uh, California seems to be certainly far and away the leader in this front, and I was wondering what efforts the Biden administration and and Congress is taking to uh, to roll out hydrogen infrastructure across the country because it's certainly an investment I believe worth making, and that for probably five to ten billion dollars they could probably create. A reliable hydrogen network across the country, which is far less than what has been spent on the oil and gas industry to create their infrastructure. Absolutely. Um, and it's very interesting that you note um, the Biden administration has um, established within the U.S. Department of Energy a program of earth shots, which is major investments akin to the moonshot of the Kennedy administration. <laughs> so this is the idea behind the earth shots. And the very first earth shot that they announced was for hydrogen energy. 
they are the first administration, first federal administration that has recognized the needed investment in hydrogen to achieve our zero emissions goals and uh, energy and environmental sustainability. The first administration to do that. And they're going to invest a lot <laughs> in ma making sure that hydrogen can contribute to our zero emissions and renewable future. Um, and what, are, what are those investments that they propose in making and what investments have they already started making? So um, the very first, uh, the main motto of the hydrogen energy Earthshot is $1 for one kilogram within one decade. So that is primarily focused upon hydrogen production. So the enabling of sun and wind power plus electrolysis for um, producing that hydrogen to get it down to $1 is a major focus of their investment. But another major focus of their investment is regional um, uh, hubs that will um, engender the kinds of things that I um, talked about, a connection to the electric grid that supports high renewable content in the electric grid, but then also connecting it to transportation applications and other end uses that will require hydrogen. So for example, decarbonizing steel is impossible with electricity alone. Decarbonizing cement uh, decarbonizing pharmaceutical production and ammonia production. You need hydrogen or something like it to do these kinds of things. And so these difficult to decarbonize applications are another focus of that administration investment. Well, it's uh, it's fascinating. I read uh, Bill Gates's book and he talks about those hard to decarbonize uh, areas such as uh, cement making and fertilizer yes. uh, production. And uh, and what we're going to do. Unfortunately, he does not uh, really focus as much attention on use of hydrogen. He does talk about it, but I don't think he explains it as well as he might. Uh, so uh, why don't you stay tuned to KBC 790, Unite and Heal America, and you'll learn more uh, from Professor Jack Brower about uh, how we can go about uh, decarbonizing our economy through the use of hydrogen and uh, create this earth shot, which will uh, drop the price of hydrogen to $1 per kilogram, which is revolutionary. We'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America at KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And I'm talking to Professor Jack Brower of United, I mean, uh, University of California at Irvine. And uh, we were just talking about the Earthshot, which uh, President Biden had announced regarding getting the price of $1, getting uh, hydrogen price to $1 per kilogram. And where are we at in that process and how are we going to get there? Well, the. Um an investment is needed in the production technology itself, these electrolyzers, um, and that investment will not only reduce the individual cost of electrolyzers and their components and make them more durable so that they can last longer and things like this, uh, but it will also enable uh, the, the broader market investment in this technology, meaning just a larger number of orders of these kinds of equipment that both will contribute to a dramatic cost reduction in the electrolysis technology itself. 
But we also must at the same time continue to invest in wind and solar technologies and have the cost of the primary energy that goes into these electrolyzers go down. So both are required. Low cost primary energy that comes either from like a waste stream or bio or from sun and wind power that are the primary inputs to the hydrogen conversion technologies, the technologies that make the hydrogen. Um, we also then need to be able to move it around in society. So we need to invest in the infrastructure, making pipelines or transforming pipelines that currently carry something that is fossil to something that will be zero emissions like renewable hydrogen. And that kind of investment, I think, also will be uh, featured by the Biden administration. And then also those underground storage facilities that I was talking about earlier. We're not sure what we have to invest in to make those hydrogen ready. Uh, so these kinds of investments are going to be really important to enabling the cost to come down substantially. Will we be able to use the natural gas pipelines that are currently in place that run uh, both commercial for commercial use as, as well as residential use? Most of us have a, a natural gas pipeline in going into our homes to power, uh, whether it's our furnaces or our stoves. Mm -hmm. Are they going to be able to be used for hydrogen in the future? So there's two aspects of that question. The very first is whether or not they can be used to deliver mixtures of fossil natural gas plus a certain fraction of renewable hydrogen. And the answer to that is an unequivocal yes. So, for example, we could deliver up to a certain percentage. We don't know the percentage yet to almost all end uses throughout the whole United States using the exact infrastructure we're using today, um, moving renewable hydrogen around in society. So we could start doing that immediately. But eventually we need to get rid of all the fossil. And that will require some research and development and some investment in the pipelines themselves, the regulators, the valves, the seals, um, and things in the infrastructure, maybe even the meter sets that are at your home might have to have something a little bit different, right? Um, maybe your stove at home would have to have a slightly smaller hole size if it's burning hydrogen instead of natural gas. These kinds of investments must be made to go to 100% hydrogen. So I imagine, and we've done research to show that it's quite feasible to first introduce up to 20%. And we can do that with existing infrastructure, no, inve no, other, no other investment. And then to piecewise transform parts of it to 100% hydrogen after we invest in the research that's required for that. And what would be the advantage of going to 20% uh, hydrogen as opposed to 100% natural gas currently? So that would immediately partially decarbonize all of the applications that used that 20% hydrogen mixture. So it would displace the combustion of the carbon um, that's in the natural gas, right? And reduce the fossil fuel consumption, okay? So but we more, but more, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, no, no, finish your thought. But even more important than that is it would be a massive resource for storage and transport and delivery of renewable sun and wind power. 
Okay. You could use the natural gas system to deliver massive amounts of sun and wind power via the gas system. Even at 20%, that's a massive amount of new sun and wind power that goes into the California infrastructure. Right. And that that we're giving away to Arizona uh, currently because we've got too much capacity. So we could could deliver some of that to Mm -hmm. people's uh, uh, consumer use. Their uh, barbecues, um, their their heaters, their water heaters. Yeah. So um, how can we achieve a zero emissions in all sectors of the economy? So hydrogen has unique features that enable decarbonization in difficult to decarbonize applications. So for example, some applications need a feedstock, meaning a chemical. They can't make that chemical without hydrogen. An example of that is ammonia or other fertilizers. They need hydrogen, which they're currently getting from fossil resources. And so renewable hydrogen made in the way we've just been discussing today is a feedstock for that. There are other um, chemicals that we use in society that need that hydrogen as a feedstock or even food items like- Could you you explain that a little bit further as to what a feedstock is and why uh, say solar energy, electricity alone couldn't uh, fill that need? Yes. We make ammonia and other fertilizers first by getting hydrogen and nitrogen, H2 and N2, into a chemical process that chemically binds them together. It's called the Haber-Bosch process. Um, Very famous process. It changed the world. It's one of the most important inventions of the 20th century. Um, Anyways. What And what you do is you actually chemically react hydrogen with nitrogen to make ammonia, NH3. Um, So you need the hydrogen. (laughs) It's impossible to make it with electricity. Uh Not just that you need energy. No, no, you need the chemicals, the H's. You need them. (laughs) Okay. Um, Similarly, with those of us who, you know, (laughs) haven't uh, been through college chemistry classes, this is a a useful uh, uh, teaching of Okay, so a feedstock means that you need the H, you need the H2, the the atom, the molecule. Um, But hydrogen also can make higher temperatures than electricity can make when you burn it. And some industry processes need this really high temperature that hydrogen could produce. Other things that need a reducing gas, they need something that will make the environment not exposed to oxygen. So for example, when you're making computer chips, when you're making computer chips, if you do that in air, you will ruin the, um, the, uh, so the electrical front. Yeah, you'll, you'll ruin your, your, um, your, your, your chip itself, okay? Um, because it'll be exposed to air and it will oxidize all the metal components in that um, uh, computer chip. Um, same with making glass or making other things. And, and so hydrogen can do that. Okay. What about making steel? What about making cement? Hydrogen has an ability to decarbonize these things that you can't do with electricity. Finally, I want to mention these difficult transportation applications, ships and planes and long haul trucks, the low weight of hydrogen can enable these to become completely zero emissions 
but batteries always have a, a shorter duration, a much smaller payload because they end up being so heavy in these kinds of applications. So th these are the sorts of things. You cannot decarbonize them without something that has the features of hydrogen, the lightweight, the long duration, the uh, high energy density, the reducing gas, the feedstock. Hmm. So many things that hydrogen can do to make them zero emissions. Now, how, uh, what's your position on uh, the use of nuclear power in, our, um, in a zero emissions economy? Are you for it or, or you think it's a bad idea? So in the state of California, we consumers have decided we don't want nuclear. And I think we, can, we have a chance here because we have a lot of sun and wind power available to us to do it without nuclear. We can do it without nuclear here in California, but other jurisdictions already have invested in nuclear plants that are being safely operated and that have, an, have a means by which they can handle the waste um, that um, I think are acceptable. The, the risks for that and zero carbon emissions associated with that, I think are acceptable. And in particular, the fusion react reactors that people are investing in, which have also no waste stream are very interesting, but I don't know for sure if they'll succeed. So um, I think that it's not a bad idea to think about and invest in nuclear as part of our zero emissions future. I don't like the fission reactors because of the waste. Okay. The fusion ones, hmm, maybe. Yeah, it's it's a tough choice. And and uh, even though I'm not a, a wild about the fission reactors either, I think yeah. that a good case can be made that in the short term, we kind of have to consider them as part of the mix because yeah. uh, given the risk to the planet uh, uh, taking a, a deep dive because of uh, global warming, uh, some serious measures are required. But yes. uh, I appreciate uh, you being on the show, Professor. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you, and uh, we look forward to talking with you in the future about uh, how the hydrogen economy is, is moving and the amazing uh, steps that it's taken over the last decade to, to help, uh, help us uh, achieve a zero emissions economy and a cleaner uh, future for our, for our planet. So uh, thank you. And uh, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is your host, Matt Matter, and we look forward to having you back uh, next week to talk uh, with us further. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks, uh, Professor. It's been a pleasure and uh, educational for sure. <laughs> thank you. As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-FOR-YOU. That's 844-MLG-FOR-YOU or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968.